What a blessing to have among our worship team members, so many of our youth. Amen. Amen. Thank you for blessing us and for blessing the Lord. Moms, if you ever wonder whether God understands what you're experiencing with those little children, look no further than this little book of Jonah. And of course, that's our cue to turn to the book of Jonah in our Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets. Every mom in this room knows about great awakenings in the middle of the night. Your newborn or your toddler perhaps cry, cries out for the very things they didn't really seem to need when you put them to bed really didn't even show any interest in at bedtime. They want water, they want a snack, they want to be cuddled, they want a story. And as the years pass, the nature of these awakenings changes, doesn't it? Every mom in this room who's been at it long enough knows what it is to try again and again to awaken a sleeping teenager and creative and even drastic measures must be taken to get that kid up and going in the right direction. I haven't had teenagers in my home for a while, and so just out of sheer curiosity, I, I googled, wake up my sleeping teenager. <laughs> and my first hit gave me a list of eight steps that could be taken in sequence to wake up a teenager. And the last step, anybody want to guess? Seek professional help. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making this up. Just Google it yourself. How many of you are glad we don't live by the wisdom of Google? Do you suppose our God knows about his children's awakenings? You suppose it's possible that our God's children often cry out to him for the very things we'd previously shown no interest in, things we thought we had no need of before? The book of Jonah reminds us that God's children often are very slow to awaken to God's specific direction for our lives. We hear God's voice. We recognize God's voice, but sometimes we don't heed God's voice, do we? And God will deploy creative and even drastic measures to awaken his sleepy children. Jonah chapter 1 confronts us with such an awakening. It's a great awakening. A disciple slumbers when he ought to serve. He's silent when he ought to speak up. He sinks in despair when he ought to be soaring in glad obedience to the will of God. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, is God's message to this sleepy disciple. And so Jonah is awakened by God's severe mercy. Remember, Jonah is a book about God. And so let's read of our God's great mercy, beginning with verse 1. 
It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain said to him, came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Do you notice, as I do, that verse 1 reads a bit like we're jumping into a story that's already started? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. There's no introductory remarks are made, as there were in Hosea when we began that study. Uh, No no kings of Israel, kings of Judah are mentioned to give us some kind of uh, historical context, as, as if we're jumping into a narrative that's been underway for some time. And why is that? Well, the thing of it is, guys, is Jonah's story has been Israel's story for some 400 years, if I did the math right. Jonah is a microcosm 
of what had been happening among God's people for about 16 generations. How many generations in your family can you think back to? Probably not 16. That's a long time. Israel's privilege as God's chosen, redeemed, distinct people was to serve as a light to the nations. God made Israel special among the nations, didn't he? Not because of her righteousness, but because of God's grace. And God graciously chose Israel and called them to be his witness people. What does that sound like? It sounds like the church, doesn't it? Set apart, distinct, for many purposes, but among them to be a witness people. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to the world, as the the, the Levites were to the nation. So Israel was to be for the world. But Israel didn't do that. Rather than reflect God's holiness to her neighbors, she became like her neighbors. Rather than share God's message of mercy to wicked, scary people, those people, Israel retreated inward and hated those people. Israel lived in fear of those people, lived in apathy toward those people, and used those people to justify an inflated view of herself and to justify her prejudices. Today we might call it racism. Now is it possible that these are obstacles that exist still today among God's witness people? So by the time Jonah gets this latest commission, remember he's not a rookie prophet, he's been at it for a while. This is just the first and very different commission to the nations. By the time Jonah gets this latest commission, um, spiritual pride and apathy have been a lifestyle in Israel for multiple generations. It's just the way everybody lived. Nobody thought anything about it. Disregard for God's mission of mercy to those people is now normative. And how many of you know when a behavior becomes normative among God's people, it becomes accepted among God's people, even though it is wholly unacceptable to God? Now, we could spend the rest of our time together this morning just, hey, do we see behaviors among God's people today that have become normative and therefore accepted by us, though they are wholly unacceptable to God? God's word to us in Jonah 1 is not merely that Jonah would not go to Nineveh. Don't think that. It's that nobody would. Everybody went to church week after week after week and agreed wholeheartedly that somebody ought to face this task unfinished. But nobody ever stepped up to be somebody. Not if it meant reaching out to those people. 
And yet God's heart toward those people is clear. Look at verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God desires to send his, his merciful message of repentance and faith to Nineveh. He's not willing that any should perish. And if you are among God's people today, friend, be sure of this. It's because you stand on mercy's ground. We gather here today in the name of Christ, uh, not because we've done some great thing, but because our great God is a God of mercy. And it's in mercy that God sends his people into the world. It's in mercy that God sends his people out into uh, extremely uh, remote places like Coeur d'Alene and Hayden. Nineveh. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah chooses to get as far away from the will of God as he can think to go. Now, I know we're familiar with this, but let's look at a map for just a minute and, and make sure we're, we're tracking here. Um, Jonah, the scripture tells us, uh, was born in northern Israel, uh, the land of Zebulun, uh, near uh, Nazareth. Okay, uh, He gets the commission to go to Nineveh. That's uh, pretty much to the east, right? That's pretty clear. But instead, he heads to, to Joppa, uh, the port city of Joppa, that's near um, Tel Aviv, or it basically is Tel Aviv, modern-day Tel Aviv today, and, and finds a ship that will take him all the way to Tarshish. And, and there's, there's debate among scholars about where this place is, but most seem to think it's in Spain. I think the point, though, in Jonah's fleeing is that he fled as far as he could go in the opposite direction of the will of God. It's not like he found a brochure about a resort in Tarshish and decided to, to, to relax there for a while. It's that God told him to do something, and he ain't going to do it, and that's as far away from the will of God as he can think to go. And we know that Jonah fully understood God's calling because verse 3 tells us straight up that he, 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 he hopped on that ship in order to flee from the presence of the Lord. What a strange thing. Surely Jonah knows that you can't literally flee from the presence of the Lord. How many of you know God is everywhere in all of his attributes, fully, all the time? Everywhere there is, God is, fully. David sang of this in Psalm 139, didn't he? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Jonah knows this. He's a prophet of God. He had taught other people this, certainly. You cannot find any place in this world where God is not present. Listen, God is inescapable. His presence is unavoidable. Are you hearing this? 
Jonah knows this. Do you? Does your life reflect an awareness that God is fully present at all times, wherever you are, whatever it is you're doing, or whatever it is you're not doing? What does it mean, do you suppose, that Jonah arose to flee from the presence of the Lord? If, if, if we understand that that's not literally what a person can do, then why does the Scripture put it to us this way? Well, the Hebrew word, pane, that is translated presence, means face. Face. I mean, literally the mouth, the nose, and the eyes of a person. So the, the, the Holy Spirit is using anthropomorphic language here, man-centered language, to give us a sense of what's going on with Jodah. God's gaze at Jonah, giving him this commission, was more than Jonah could bear. And folks, do you realize that when we disobey the word of God, it's as if we're turning our backs to the face of God? God comes to us in his word and and he speaks to us in such deliberate ways, does he not? Revealing his will to us and then by his spirit he translates his his will to us in in the most intimate and personal ways. Uh, This is what I want you to do with your life and, and we can just willfully go in the opposite direction. That's what the scripture would call fleeing from the presence of the Lord. How many people are doing this today, do you suppose? Turning their backs to the very face of God. God has directed you and you've heard his direction, but you're just not going to do it. Are, are, Are you doing what God wants you to be doing with your life? Or are you like Jonah? willfully disobeying, which is to say fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Notice in verse 3, now this is where I got stuck, and so you guys know how this works. Um, Notice in verse 3 the word arose, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, but then it's all downhill from there. You notice how often the word down is repeated? He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship, says verse 3. And then in verse 5, he went down into the lowest parts of the ship. And then he's laying down. Do you realize that when you obey God, you're on your way up? You get closer and closer to Him relationally? You experience the sweetness and the blessing of of fellowship with God that is yours as you walk in His ways. We had a wonderful, encouraging teaching about this that the men did at yesterday's men's breakfast, didn't we? But the moment you rise up to disobey God, you're on your way down. And it doesn't matter whether you feel it so. The Scripture says to you today, it is so. You're on a downward spiritual trajectory. You, go, you grow farther and farther away from the relational presence of God. Why is that? Because sin and the flesh drag you down just as Jonah is being drugged down. 
So we're meant to be asking ourselves. We're not meant to look at Jonah or even Israel and say, man, how messed up is that? We're meant to be looking at our own hearts and our own lives. Am I living in subjection to the will of God or not? Am I running into the will of God as he's revealed it to me in his word by his spirit? Or am I, in a sense, turning my back to God's face? Wondering why I'm not at peace within my own conscience. That's why this is such a soul-searching book for us. Jonah dares to ask us whether any of us are in the grip of sin that will drag us down into a lost eternity. Or whether we're animated by the spirit of obedience, the spirit of God. So that by his grace, however imperfectly we do so, we thrill to walk in his ways. We want to run toward our God of mercy, not away from him. So where are you at with all of this? Well, I want us to notice that Jonah finds plenty of things that might affirm his decision to flee to Tarshish. Did you notice that? He needed a ship to get there, and he found a ship to go there. He'll have to pay a premium for such a long and dangerous voyage, but he just happens to have in his coin purse enough for such a trip. What providence this is. I mean, God must be in it, right? I mean, if God wasn't in it, there wouldn't be a ship. If God wasn't in it, he wouldn't be able to pay the fare, right? No. How many of you know that temptation to sin and opportunity to sin often travel together? That shouldn't surprise us at all. It's all lining up the way Jonah wants it to line up. So it must be God's will, right? I remember several years ago, a precious young couple in our church, and they were so excited that God had allowed them to buy a, a, a brand new pickup truck. And it was roughly the price of a, of a small house. And uh, she bought it all on credit. And, uh, and they were just so pleased that the Lord had allowed them to do that. And uh, what a blessing it was. I'm going to say this tenderly, but, but there, there were some of us in our small group at the time that were just wincing when we heard that because it sounded a lot like something we had done in our own lives. God allowed it to happen, so it must have been God's will, and it isn't so. Listen, God's allowance is not the same thing as God's affirmation. So Jonah keeps going down. And the the moment he steps on that ship, he figures, hey, everything's going to be just fine. I needed a ship. There was a ship. I needed enough money to go. I had enough money to go. But he's on his way down and then down further still and, and then down some more. And the fact that God uses Jonah's disobedience to accomplish his purposes, 
does not justify Jonah's disobedience. I hope we see that. We don't ever want to use God's sovereignty, the fact that God is not limited by our sinfulness, his, his purposes are not thwarted by our disobedience. We don't want to use God's sovereignty to justify our disobedience. God's sovereign control of all things does not excuse or justify my disobedience to him. And Jonah was way off course if he's thinking to himself, well, you know, God's going to do his thing anyway. And so Jonah continues his descent. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship. He goes down into the belly of the ship. And then he lays down to sleep. And verse 4 tells us, The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Remember, the God who sends his word is the God who sends his wind. The God who, who, who so often whispers to us or speaks gently to us by the Spirit through his word now breathes a tempest. The ship that was at first carrying Jonah and the mariners, so gently, now is a stage for God's severe mercy to do its work. Do you realize, friend, that God is not only willing and able to bring calm to your storm, He's willing and able to bring a storm into your calm? This is God's storm. This is God's Severe mercy. What a terrible circumstance I'm in, we sometimes say. And it never occurs to us to think that God's storms are purposeful. They're often God's wake-up calls for sleepy disciples. They're God's great awakenings for sleepy disciples. You just got to ask yourself, how many of the financial storms that God's people experience, do you suppose, are God's calls for us to recognize his ownership of all things, our stewardship of his blessings, that our greatest blessing comes not from stuff and experiences, but from contented relationship with him? How many of our mental and emotional storms, do you suppose, are, are God's call for us to step into his agenda and stop living like we're at the center of the universe, the center of our own lives, choosing our own way, and then asking God to bless it? Aren't you glad you've never done that? How many storms, even in churches today, our God's call to awaken his people to his purpose for his church. It's to do with his glory. It's to do with forming Christ and his people, isn't it? It's to do with reaching the nations, let alone the neighbors, with the message of God's mercy for sinners like us. The, the, the church is not a community that exists so that our desires and interests are served. Our self-fulfillment in ministry is met. 
And certainly not so the itch of our latest spiritual scruples gets scratched. Yes, God will calm our storms. His love for us is so. But let us learn from Jonah. He'll storm your calm. I know he's done it in my life. Maybe he's doing it in yours right now. Verse 5 tells us that Jonah completely missed this part of God's providence. It, it is almost funny, almost funny, that we find Jonah sleeping deeply down in the belly of this ship. The, 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 the sailors see God's providence in this before Jonah does. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Uh, but Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And you just got to ask yourself, how do you stay asleep? When a storm sent from God is ripping the ship apart. Well... We could speculate, I suppose, um, barring the use of sleep aids, that Jonah perhaps is despondent. Maybe he's depressed even. Do you think his conscience was speaking to him about the direction of his travel? How many of you know disobedient disciples often descend into despair and depression? That's That's not a surprising thing. Do you realize there's a spiritual depression that accompanies disobedience? And that this is actually a mercy from God? Now, I want to be cautious about this. There are lots of reasons God's people experience despair and depression. Sometimes we experience depression because we're God's people. And we live in a world that's opposed to God. And the God of this world relentlessly attacks the children of God. Sometimes we experience depression for for physiological reasons or even genetic reasons. But let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater here. All of that is not to suggest that depression cannot be brought on in God's people by our disobedience. You see, because God loves us too much to let us be cool with our disobedience. How many of you know it's emotionally and even physically exhausting to maintain a life that is far outside of God's will? I know that from experience. Do you? But on this we do not need to speculate, do we? If you stop listening to God's word, you will not read his providence rightly. Disobedient disciples become deaf to God's providences. What do I mean by that? Let me me put it this way. Why do you suppose so many Christians have been living in abject fear for the last 18 months, fear of disease and death and all of the demonic activity that's happening around us that is very real? It's because they've stopped listening to God's word that tells us to expect such things, that tells us to live by faith and not fear, to live by faith. Faith in Christ and not sight. 
And it tells us to focus on his mission rather than lament our decreasing influence in the culture, our loss of ease, our loss of comfort. Nobody thinks we're that big a deal anymore. That sort of thing. Do you think disobedient disciples become deaf to God's providences? Is it possible that God, in his mercy, has sent to us a great awakening? Are we okay? The Puritans used to say that there were three books a Christian always ought to be reading. The Bible, God's providence, and their own hearts. And what did they mean by that, do you suppose? Well, we're meant to read the scriptures and believe God's voice. Did you really mean go to Nineveh? Yep. We're meant to read God's work in the world, his providences, through the lens of scripture and not how we feel about it or not be people who live by, well, it seems to me that no, we live by the revealed word, will of God in his word, and then we're meant to read our own hearts in light of the first two. So, so let's, let's just try that out. If God's word tells us we're to be his witness people, uh, and, and God's providence shows us that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, what ought to be happening in our hearts, do you suppose? Somebody ought to do something. Will nobody be somebody? Jonah slips into a deep sleep because he slipped deeply outside of God's will. He stopped listening to the word of God. So he cannot read rightly the providence of God because his heart is far from God. So the captain came to him and said to him in verse 6, What do you mean, sleeper, arise? Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Do you realize that when you and I disobey God, other people are in jeopardy too? There, there is no such thing as private sin. Oh, we, we, we imagine this to be the case for sure. Certainly Jonah would have. It's nobody else's business that he's on his way to Tarshish, is it? That's not going to affect God's people, Israel, is it? It's, it's got nothing to do with the guys running the ship, does it? Oh my. That decision you made because you want to be happy and comfortable and safe, even though you know it's outside the will of God, that affects a lot of people, not just you. Jonah's selfish, self-protective decision, a decision he thought to be private, it's just between him and God, creates a public disaster for a lot of people. How do we know that? Well, we're still talking about it today. And God graciously uses a pagan to give voice to his wake-up call. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise. I wonder if there's anybody here among us today to whom God is now saying, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise. 
They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? What's your deal? Everything was fine until you showed up. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Don't miss this. The captain asks him, or the, the, the sailors anyway, ask him, what's your occupation? Jonah never really answers that question, does he? Oh, I'm in vocational ministry. I serve the living God. How can you tell someone you're an ambassador for the living God when you're living as far outside his will as a human being could travel from that part of the world? Listen, disobedient disciples soil or even silence their testimonies. At some point, you're so far away and you've gone so far down, you can't speak up. Jonah doesn't deny his faith in God. I, I fear the Lord, he says, but, but he's neutralized, really, as an effective witness to the sailors because he's compromised in his disobedience to the Lord. And I wonder if there might be a lesson there for the church at large. How do you speak up about a God who is holy about a Savior who is coming again to judge the living and the dead when you're living like those who are spiritually dead. It gets even worse, don't you think? Look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, that has to be an understatement, and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, Why did you flee? <laughs> Because I don't want to face this task unfinished. If I can't serve God the way I really want to serve God, then I'm leaving. I'm done. Here's the thing. If you're on your way to Tarshish, it isn't just that you've rejected the call to Nineveh. You have checked out as a prophet to Israel. Because Tarshish, wherever in the world it was, it wasn't anywhere near Israel. How many of you know disobedient disciples grow discontent with their calling? If I don't get to serve the Lord the way I want to serve the Lord, then I'm out. We don't have to imagine what it is to quit on God's calling in order to preserve comfort, safety, security. How many Christians in our community do you suppose are fully capable and qualified to serve on a local school board or at a community college or as a library trustee or as a city council person, maybe even a mayor, but they're not going to do it because it's easier to sit on the sidelines and whine about how messed up it all is. How many people in this church 
are fully capable of taking care of our little ones for an hour or two so moms can be a part of a small group, dads too, or to teach our youngsters in children's church. Is, is, is that not our mission field? Somebody ought to do it. Will nobody be somebody? How many men do you suppose in a church of seven, eight hundred people, retired men could serve as friends and mentors to the fellas at Lazarus House or for the Department of Corrections? The State Department of Corrections has pleaded with the churches to supply willing mentors or the juvenile justice outreach full of teenagers on the brink of making one last really bad decision, shaping their lives, shaping our community. But, you know, it's easier to sit around and study serving God sometimes than it is to serve God. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise. This is always the danger of these things being practical. Personal. Well, we're going in a direction now, aren't we? When you rise up to disobey God, you're on your way down. Look at verse 11. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. And there is the wisdom of Jonah. I know that this great tempest is because of me. Is it possible? You're at a place in your life right now, friend where God has given you grace to see clearly, so clearly that you can say, you know, I, I, I know that this tempest is because of me. The name Jonah means dove. And that reminds us of the dove that Noah released from the ark. And that dove searched for safe landing and found none as the sea of God's judgment was raging and so Jonah flies from the will of God and he finds no safe landing as the sea of God's severe mercy must do its work. And how many of you know our God has not changed? He is still merciful to his wayward children and at times his mercy is severe. Everywhere Jonah turns, God is there, and everywhere God is, his face is looking at Jonah. Let's end with this. And I don't mean immediately, but eventually let's end with this. Let's remember that this book is not to do with Jonah as much as it is to do with God. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. What, what a remarkable thing this is. The sacrifice of one prophet for the benefit of everybody else. Or I should say for the benefit of those many sailors. If, if the sailors are to be spared, Jonah must die. 
Indeed, Jesus said, a greater than Jonah is here. Do you see in Jonah a picture of Christ? Jesus, though perfect in his obedience, took the place of his disobedient people and was cast into the sea of sin's death, the just wrath of God for sin, for the salvation of many. How many? Well, says John the Apostle, as many as received him, to these he gives the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Is that you? Have you been born of God? Are you born of the Spirit to receive Christ as your substitute and shelter from the wrath of God for your sin? Are you born of God to see in Christ your only rescue? Because there is a day coming, friend, when you will face the living God and say, Ah, this tempest is because of me. And and, and among Christ's disciples today, the, the, the word of our Lord has come to us once again, hasn't it? And if Christ is ours... Let's just ask ourselves, are we obeying him? When when he reveals his will to us through his word, by his spirit, is that the direction we go? And if we're not, then can we not hear the word of God this morning saying to us, "What, what, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise. Let verse 17 be our encouragement. Now the, word, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three, night, three days and three nights. Jonah was spared in that fish for exactly the amount of, of time that would typify the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that something? How can God redeem And accept such wayward people, such willfully disobedient people as Jonah or Israel or those who are in Nineveh, all of those people. (laughs) Well, he does so on the basis of Jesus being judged for our sin, placed in that tomb, and then raised up in life. He raises up his own with him to newness of life. Here's the thing. Downward spirals Jonah in his disobedience, but the Lord has prepared even for that. The sailors couldn't see it. And Jonah couldn't see it. But beneath the surface, God had prepared a fish so that at just the right instant, this wayward prophet would be snatched to safety by his God of mercy. You see, all the while Jonah was fleeing from the presence of God, the presence of God had gone before Jonah. Does that not encourage you? Though God's servants at times may flee from his will, God's presence 
remains with his servants. Jonah is a book about God. So let's pray for grace to awaken where God would have us be awakened and serve our God of mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we are forgiven because you were forsaken. We thank you that because you were condemned, we who know you by faith will never be condemned for sin. And Lord, you have awakened us with your word to show us why we experience some of the storms that you allow to come into our lives. Sometimes you send them, Lord. And it's not because you're cruel. It's not because you just, just want to see how we'll handle it. It's because you love us more than we'll ever understand. And you will go to creative and even drastic means to awaken your sleepy children. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. And we ask you for grace to live in your will and experience the joy that belongs to those who obey you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.